My name is Chris Lane. Welcome to the Vineyard. Lovely to see you. Good to be here. If you were here last week on our Easter celebration, we had a fabulous time. God is so good. He just breathes life into us. He never gets tired of visiting us and meeting with us and inspiring us and helping us. And, and uh, so we are just grateful. And today I'm just going to do the second part of our little talk, a little sort of mini-series. It's not even a series, really. It's a two-parter entitled The Seed. And I, uh, if, if you missed last week, well, then by all means, please do just sort of catch up and uh, listen to the podcast uh, or, or watch the video cast if you so wish. But uh, last week, we said this. We said that uh, we looked at John chapter 12, 24 to 28. Hannah, let's just read that. Let's just throw that up on the screen. Jesus said this. This was one of those kind of things that Jesus would throw away at some point, And it was kind of like, what did he just say? And what does that mean anyway? But actually, let's just read it. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. We're going to stop there. Don't bother to put the next part up, Hannah. Thank you. Now, this is one of those things that, you know, when Jesus said it at the time, uh, people would have thought, what? Now, being an agricultural culture, they would have understood the principle, but they would have said, well, what's, what's that got to do with anything? And in fact, funnily enough, his hearers responded to this in a number of ways. In fact, the Jewish hearers, the, the teachers, they thought, oh, this boy's completely lost it, you know, what have you. But of course, what Jesus was alluding to and foretelling was the fact that he was going to die upon the cross for the sins of the world, and he was actually going to rise again from the dead. And as a result of that death and resurrection, the worldwide church, of which we are a part, would be born. You know, I, I just thought, just as I was eating my porridge this morning, I just thought, I'll just, I'll just sort of type in church and Christianity. And, you know, Wikipedia, and in fact, Wikipedia and tele, the Telegraph and the BBC all popped up there on the Google search. And a little bit of, a little bit of information here. It says, Christianity is the fastest growing worldwide religion with 2.2 billion followers. 2.2 billion followers. Even in this country, says the Telegraph, that six million people still claim to be Christians. Oh, maybe they're all Christians, but six million people still claim to be Christians. And of that, it's extraordinary of the, in any given church uh, Sunday, there will be somewhere in the region of 1.4 million people in this country. Interestingly, interestingly enough, the figures have gone up, not just because the church is beginning to do rather well, but all these immigrants that the government gets so sort of upset about, many of them are devout followers of Jesus. Many of them are Catholics, and Pentecostals, and they come in and they're revitalizing our faith in some areas. It's extraordinary. But I say all that to say this. The worldwide church is doing very well, thank you. Particularly in the two-thirds world. And all of us here today, and all of us meeting worldwide in our various uh, you know, settings, are testimony to the fact that Jesus' death upon the cross, that one seed dying that others may have life, was worthwhile. We honor God and we bring glory to Jesus because we are here today. His death was not in vain. 
His death has borne fruit and continues, even in the 21st century, continues to bear fruit. Now, I want to change gear, but by way of introduction, where I'm wanting to go today, I'm wanting to basically spend some time in the Word of God doing a, going through a sort of a narrative passage. Uh, I enjoy doing that, and, and I just feel a real... Uh, uh, prompting of the Lord to, to look at that in just a moment. But by way of, of, of pressing this point home, let's look at another sort of related and similar passage, and that's John chapter 10, 11 to 18. The good shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus in John's gospel refers to himself as the good shepherd. And he says this in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And that last reference, of course, many commentators believe, and I think it's generally agreed, is that Jesus was foretelling the fact that his ministry that was primarily to the Jews of his day was in fact going to be an international ministry and inclusive of both Jew and Gentile. Remember how last week if you were here I said, Jesus said he is, it was prophesied that he would be a light unto the Gentiles. And so Jesus is saying, I've got sheep here and I've got sheep elsewhere and I'm going to unite them, they're all going to be one. But again, what I want you to catch in this reading today is this principle that the good shepherd, unlike the sort of hired hand or the contract worker or the part-time worker or whoever, the good shepherd, he lays down his life for the sake of the sheep. That's the nature of the one true shepherd. He cares intimately, even to the point of giving his life for his flock. His flock are important to him. Now just park that thought there for a moment. We'll come back to it at the end. Okay, so why don't we turn then to John chapter 21. This is one of those uh, resurrection accounts. So Jesus has died, Jesus has risen. We celebrated that last Sunday. And there are a number of accounts about Jesus uh, and his interaction with his followers uh, after the resurrection. And this is in the in-between time between his resurrection and his ascension into heaven about 60 days after he had risen from the dead. And we can read about this at the beginning of Acts Gospel, and and Rich and the team are going to be preaching on Acts over the next few weeks, next two or three weeks. Uh, And right at the beginning of Acts, there's this account of Jesus ascending into heaven. And in that in-between time, he kept popping up in unexpected places. That whom, he whom was, was slain is clearly alive. And this is one of those stories, and I love it. I hope you will appreciate it too. John chapter 21. Let me just pray. Father, I thank you 
that you've set a table before us, you've laid the table, the cutter is there, the food is prepared. Lord, it smells good to us, that which you've done for us in Christ. And I pray, Lord God, that you would help me to serve it up and that we would feed on your word in a way that brings life and health and wholeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's begin. Verse 1, chapter 21, John's Gospel. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. This way, and it happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now they've been through a lot, these guys, last few weeks. In the run-up to it, there was three years of following Jesus around, running errands here and there, high feasts and holidays. It was pretty exhausting. It was pretty full on, but boy, it was so worthwhile. And then it culminated only a few short days ago in this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It was wonderful. Finally, it felt like it was all coming right. But out of the jaws of victory, somehow, defeat was snatched. Somehow, when all seemed to be coming together, the culmination of three years' hard work seemed to go west. And boy, did it go west. It went west big time. Jesus is arrested. The flock, as such as they are, scatter. Jesus is flogged and crucified. The, 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 the rabble, the crowd, the, the mob who yesterday had been singing his praises and lining up to get healed, suddenly want him crucified. And then to top it all, they're in fear of their very life, thinking that they're going to be arrested less, next. They're on the list. Jesus... They're told has risen from the dead. What? And then he clearly is risen from the dead. And he appears to them on several occasions. And in the midst of all this turmoil, I mean, these are just ordinary men and women like you and I. Boy, it's almost more than flesh and blood can stand. Hopes dashed, rises again. Consternation. What does it all mean? What do we do with this? And so on and so forth an emotional roller coaster. And there comes a point where dear old Peter, the action man, just can't stand it anymore. He says, one morning, it's no good, I'm gonna go fishing. Why fishing? I mean, well, he, fishing was what he knew. Fishing was what he could do with his eyes closed. He'd been brought up on the Sea of Galilee, you will recall, his family were fishermen and they were sons of fishermen. And sometimes when we're in high-stress situations, perhaps, unlike the disciples here, because this was different, but perhaps as we mourn the death of a loved one, and it comes as there's the shock and there's the, I don't know what to do, you, you, you're kind of stupefied to begin with. You just don't know what to do with yourself. All you can barely do is make yourself a cup of tea and answer the phone and, you know, well wishes. But, but there comes a point where you just say, oh, I've got to do something. And I don't know, you, maybe you go shopping or play around a round of golf with a friend or 
go for a walk or take the dog out or, or, or go back to work. I just need some routine. I can't ha-. and, and Peter got to that point. He couldn't stand it. All this kind of, kind of craziness. He, couldn't st- he said, I'm going fishing. And the other guys were, said, we'll come with you. So they set off and they go and do that which they know. They go fishing. Except it doesn't work out that, like that. In fact, they end up catching nothing. So they can't even do that right. It's pretty frustrating. Anyway, the story goes on. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. It was in that pre-dawn time. The, you know, the, the sky is beginning to kind of gray up. The hills around Galilee. I've been there. Maybe you have too. It's covered. There's mountain ranges all the way around. They're black silhouettes, few little twinkles, the odd dog barking in the distance. Otherwise, it's perfectly still. And then the sky begins to gray up, heralding the dawn. And as the first light begins to pervade, not, no sunbeams yet, but as the, the light begins to pervade the scene, they see a silhouette on the shore. Jesus called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands here. But how many of us remember the call of Peter right at the beginning of this extraordinary roller coaster adventure? In Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 5. Do you recall how on that occasion the story says that they'd been out all night fishing and they'd not caught anything? It wasn't uncommon, it was a bit of a drag when it happened, but it did happen from time to time, and this was one of those occasions. And the fishermen were on the seashore mending their nets, and along comes Jesus with his entourage and a load of hangers on. Anyway, long story short. When Jesus has finished teaching and you can't get off, they couldn't go home or anything, he says to Peter, have you caught any fish? And he said, no. And he said, okay, we'll push your boat out, you'll catch some fish. There's a bit of a conversation, I haven't got time to sort of go through that. You can read that yourself, Luke 15, Luke 5 rather. Anyway, Jesus sends Peter out and Peter goes out and he catches the most enormous haul of fish. So here we have it. Pre-dawn, stranger on the shore. Have you caught any fish? No, try the other side, you'll catch some. That was a bit weird. So they chuck it over, what have they got to lose? And bingo, they are into a full-on shoal. And for Peter, and maybe one or two of the other disciples, suddenly they get that kind of tingle down their back. The hairs on the back of their no go Hairs on the back of their neck go up. Something is happening. One of the disciples, verse 7, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with the fish on it and some bread. 
And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. Now forgive me if I extrapolate a little here. There was a rhythm to life on the road with Jesus. There was a rhythm to it. Typically, and we know this from the scriptures, Jesus would get up very, very, very early. And he would go and find a quiet, lonely place and he would spend time with the Father before everybody else was up. The disciples would be often still asleep and if they were on the road, they'd be huddled up around the campfire in some little camping place. But Jesus would be out there with the Father, seeking his face. And it was in those special times, pre-dawn, that Jesus would get his marching orders, if I can call them that. Jesus totally lived in the moment with the Father. It was a dynamic relationship. Flissy and I, bless her heart, you know, I don't know where she is at the moment. But Flissy and I, oh, there she is at the back. We've been married 43 years Celebrated it just this last week. You can applaud, you know. Thank you. I tell you, anyone who can put up with me for 43 years deserves a medal, you know. But we have a, a dynamic relationship. We're not one of those couples that have got nothing to say with, to one another. You know, long silences. Occasionally when you're in a restaurant, you'll see a couple there and they've got nothing to say. And it's sad. Fliss and I are always interacting with one another. And it's one of the joys of, of our marriage, and marriage in particular, that there's always something new to know. Fliss is always surprising me. For example, and she's given me permission to share this, and it may, it may amuse me, it may not amuse you, but the other night she couldn't sleep, so she got up and made a double espresso. Now, how does that work? <laughs> you women are a mystery to me. I'd be completely wired. I'd be bouncing off the ceiling if, if I took a double espresso. But she had a double espresso and then came back and went fast asleep. I don't know how that works. <laughs> I am surprised. 43 years and my wife surprises me. My point being is that good relationships are based on familiarity, comfort, mutual support and respect. But there's something dynamic about them. And when Jesus went away to pray with the Father, he didn't just go through the Jewish prayer book, praying the Psalms like a good Jewish boy over and over and over and over by rote. It was a dynamic relationship. Jesus said, and this is one of the PowerPoints of Jesus' ministry, one of the great secrets that the church is rediscovering. Jesus said of his ministry, I only do that which I see the Father doing. And I only say that which I hear the Father say. It was dynamic and in the moment. Yes, there was a broad plan. There was a big plan. There was the great mission of the cross. And that was always before Jesus. He knew what he was about. He knew where he was going. And he knew how it would end. <laughs> Excuse me. He knew how it would end. But in the, in the everyday cut and thrust of ministry in his life, it was a dynamic relationship. So Jesus would go out and seek the Father's face. 
And he would then come back, and if they were on the road, he would make breakfast. As I said, a little extrapolation. And as dawn was breaking and the sun was beginning to rise, as the guys began to shuffle around, of course they'd rise early, they were fishermen and artisans. He would say, come and have breakfast. And at that point, he would give them their marching orders. That which he had just got from the Father, he would say to them. Luke 10, he says to them, okay, I want you to go off two by two into the villages ahead. Uh, I need you to cast out the demons. I need you to heal the sick. Da, 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 da. You, what? And so on and so forth. So that conversation at breakfast, that rhythm, that routine of three years on the road with Jesus, there are echoes of that here. Jesus says, come and have breakfast. At the end of the day, they all sort of swap stories and ask questions, and it was all, oh, how did that, why didn't that work, and who did this, and where did you see the way that, and all this kind of thing. But at the beginning of the day, it was Jesus, Jesus, and more of Jesus. So, they have breakfast. Verse 15. Verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now remember, Simon was going through a hard time. They were all going through a hard time. They were having a hard time dealing with the way they'd responded to Jesus' arrest. I mean, Jesus was all alone. It says in the scriptures that his friends would desert him. And if you will recall, some of you, how Peter had said to Jesus, I will never desert you. No, I, 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 will, I will go with you. The others may leave and desert you, but I will go with you. And I will die with you. That's what he'd confidently asserted just two or three chapters previous to this. And Jesus said to him in that moment, die with me, Peter. Really? You? Die with me? Yeah, I will die with you. What do you mean, really? I will die with you. There's no way you'll go. We've left everything. I will. Peter, before this night is over, you will deny me three times and then the cock will crow. And it happened just like Jesus said. There isn't time to tell the story. Many of you know it. If you don't, just read back a few chapters from 21, you'll get it. So there wasn't just a huge haul, a huge weight of fish on that, deck, on that beach. There was a huge weight, burden of shame. Although Peter was delighted to see Jesus, he jumped into the sea and waded ashore. When he got there, it was kind of like, oh, what do I do now? Because there was this great burden of shame. And quite frankly, what he probably, I'm extrapolating again, what he probably would have appreciated was for, for Jesus just to kind of let it go. But no, Jesus isn't like that. Jesus goes straight to the point. And the other guys are there, and he says to Peter after they finish the meal, do you love me, Peter? Oh, that's just like Jesus, you know. I mean, we all go through life with with things we regret. Some of us struggle with shame. Some of us 
struggle with the consequences of being victims at some point, maybe as children in our lives. You know, we struggle with that. Maybe we've been victimizers. One of my best friends, after years of knowing him, confessed to me that he had been a bully at school, a notorious bully. And what triggered that was he was at a a gala dinner dance in the city of London, and this chap came up to him and said, you don't remember me, do you? And my friend said to him, no, I don't. He said, I'm so-and-so, and he made, gave his name, and he said, I'm sorry, I still don't have, have we, was it? I know, it was at the Xerox do. He said, no, you bullied me at school. You made my hell, life hell. Some of us have been victims, others are victimizers, and we feel shame as a result of it. Peter felt shame here. Everyone knew that he had said, I will die with you. What's more, he said, this lot might do a bunk. I won't. And yet he did. And then Peter, how is he to respond to this thing, that, this attention that Jesus is giving him at this time? See, Jesus will not let us live with our shame. He will not leave, leave us in our secret sin. For him it is all laid bare, and in John 10.10, he says this, I have come that you may have life, life in all its abundance. So you can't negotiate with Jesus. You can't say, look, that was the past. Let's leave it where it is, you know. Let sleeping dogs lie. I want to live for you now. If there's stuff in your life, you better be sure that Jesus is going to zero in on it and deal with that. Because until that is dealt with, forgiven or healed or made whole, you are still a cripple and will be crippled by it. So Jesus goes straight to the jugular. Peter, do you really love me? Now I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the Greek here. Quite frankly, there's not a lot to say, although a lot of preachers will make a lot out of it. But actually the word here that Jesus uses in the New Testament Greek is agape. Do you agape me? And it means, do you love me wholeheartedly? Every part of you. It's a, it's a very inclusive thing. Body and soul. It's a bit like a marriage vow, you know. That sort of sense. You know, better and worse. Richer and poorer. Sickness and health. Do, do you love me? The full nine, ten yards. And that causes Peter a bit of a problem because the evidence is that he doesn't love him. But he's talking to the Son of God, what's more, the risen Son of God, still with the scars on his hand. He, he knows that Jesus knows all things. He cannot lie. And so Peter is struggling. He knows what he's done. And yet when asked so directly, do you really, really, really love me, Peter? He can't retort, well, it's obvious I don't, like some sort of bickering family row. When pinned by the question that the Son of God is asking, he has to say, yeah, I love you. There seems to be a contradiction there, a paradox with what he does and what he says, but the truth is he does love him. You know, Fliss and I have been married for 43 years. If you were to ask her, you know, does Chris ever mess up? She'd say, no, he's the perfect husband. (laughs) Not. Truth of the matter is that sometimes I do things that aren't very loving. In the moment, you might be forgiven for believing that I do not love my wife, and vice versa. And in fact, if you're honest in any relationship, there are those moments where we, because we know one another, in the heat of a moment, we can be 
inexplicably cruel. We mess up. And boy, do we mess up. And boy, did Peter mess up. But the truth of the matter is, I do love my wife. I love her as much, if not more now, than when I first met her. The day I married her. And that's the truth. And it will be true for you if you've been in a long-term relationship. Yes, you mess up, but you do love them. So Jesus is helping Peter, although he doesn't feel like he's being helped at the moment. He feels like he's being got at. But just because he's carrying this weight of shame because he denied Jesus, Jesus understands that was the moment. But the reality is that underneath it all, Peter loves him. Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? Well, Peter is a bit wriggly and evasive, curiously enough. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, but he uses the word phileo, which is kind of a less than full on. It's kind of like a conditional I love you. It's kind of like the, the friendship sort of a little bit more than that, but it, it's not quite the full on thing. Anyway, Jesus takes that. He doesn't argue with him. He just responds to him in an unusual way. Feed my lambs. I ask you to park a thought about Jesus the Good Shepherd. Feed my lambs. Hold that thought. Verse 16, again Jesus says, Simon of John, do you love me? <sighs> Peter says, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus says to him, take care of my sheep. Jesus, the good shepherd, who's quite unlike anyone else, the hired hand, who takes responsibility, his care and his love for the sheep to the point of death, says to Peter the denier, Peter, will you, I choose you, you, to take care of my sheep. Verse 17 the third time he said to him, son, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Peter's not really getting it. He's just feeling insecure. He's feeling or sensing that this is leading to some condemnation. You said you love me. You said that you do this. You said you do that. You said you die for me. Where were you, bro? I think I saw the flash of your heels as you legged it out. That's the human reaction. That's the natural thing. Without Christ, and often with Christ, we're all too prone to be back-footed and insecure and defensive when challenged. He is expecting to be thrashed by Jesus on this issue because it was such a public falling. But in fact, Jesus is not about that at all. Jesus asks him a third time, do you really love me? And it's not for anyone's benefit other than Peter's. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. I know it doesn't stack up, but I do love you. With that, Jesus, the good shepherd, says to him, Peter, watch my lips, think on, son, feed my sheep. 
Got it? Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. You did what you liked. You set the agenda. You pursued what you wanted to pursue. You lived life. Yeah, you thought you were doing a good job. You, 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 set, you, you just lived your life. But now, from this day on, your life is not your own. When you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and where you do not want to go, you will go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. The truth was that these 20-somethings, and that's all they were, we forget that. We kind of think that they're bearded apostles in some stained glass. These were just young guys. All of them were just young guys. And boy, they messed up. But the truth is that Peter was destined to be a martyr. That Peter would die for Jesus. Tradition has it, as many of you will know, that he was crucified and crucified upside down, saying, I am not worthy to die the same way as my Savior did. That inverted cross, St. Peter's cross it's called, Nowhere in the scriptures do we know that to be true, but it's, he laid down his life. And the truth is, the rest of them here, all these bunch of young men, fresh-faced, confused, you know, people like young Tom there, same sort of age. Tom, just, I'm sorry to embarrass you, just stand up. I just want, as a visual aid, just stand up. This is Tom. Turn around, do a little twirl. <laughs> Tom is a very gifted sportsman. He's a Christian in sport. We must pray for him. He's playing professionally and semi-professionally and we're wanting great things for him. Bless you, Tom. You can sit down. These are the kind of guys we're talking about. Not mature, heroic figures like me. <laughs> we're talking about guys like that. Tom. And they behave like young men sometimes, arguing on the street. Jesus says to James and John, will you please shut up? What are you talking about anyway? Peter says, I'm going to die with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You better believe it, bro. You and me to get a band of brothers, yeah. Doesn't happen. But Jesus knew his man, knew his women. He knew their hearts. And Peter ultimately, after a lifetime of dying to self, being led by the agenda of God, died on the cross, an inverted cross, and every single one of these other young men did the same. There is not one of those early disciples except Judas who did not die a martyr's death. Even doubting Thomas some of you know this already. He, unlike the others, went east, founded the church in India, one of the earliest Christian churches, and was martyred there. They all became heroes of the faith in the end, but not at this point. But Jesus knew his men, knew, and he would not have them burdened by shame and guilt and sin. 
And he prophesied and prayed over them. And he, de- he dealt with their sin and their stuff. Excuse me. <clears throat> and finally, Jesus says this to them. Follow me. I trust you. I'm the good shepherd. Here are my sheep whom I love. I'm going back to my father. Take care of my sheep. And follow me. And for all of you, that will mean challenge and sacrifice. For some of you, it might mean martyrdom and death. Follow me. And as the band comes back up and we wind this up, I felt the Lord wanted to say, maybe speaking to those of us who've been in the faith for a while, maybe you've run out of steam, maybe you have ground to a halt, maybe you are struggling with that sense of failure that ultimately seems to have crippled you. And I want to say to you, if you've been a Christian for a while and you seem to have lost your way a bit, lost your passion, you took a wrong turning somewhere, maybe you know where that was, maybe you don't know, it's just an indefinable sense of having lost your passion, your impetus, your motivation or something, God wants to say to you, as he said to Peter, do you love me? Not with a pointy accusing finger, but to call up with you, you that first love. And as we begin to realize that, yes, Lord, we do love you, despite all appearances. Yes, Lord, we love you. He says, take care of my sheep, love one another, die for one another, prefer others over yourself, but most of all, follow me. Follow me. Wow. Let's stand and pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you to you because you comfort us and you challenge us and you draw us on. And sometimes, Lord, you press on in when we don't want you to press on in. Sometimes, Lord God, you, we're almost embarrassed by your attention. We, we say there must be somebody more more needy than us, Lord God. And yet, Lord, you zero in and you deal with our stuff. And then, Lord God, you say to our amazement, I call you, feed my sheep, follow me. And that's a word to every single man, woman, and child here today. Jesus, the risen Christ, says, follow me.
And everyone said, 